Welcome to the Samach 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. This message from Jason is titled, Hope Amidst Hopelessness. Look at Daniel chapter 8, continuing in our Hope Against Hope series. I had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue it from its power. As it did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the hosts of the heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord and it took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and the truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. And continuing on from verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in a time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents the four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their region, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. 
He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given to you to... (laughs) Pardon me. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns a distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Deny Jesus and live, or choose not to and die? It's a question that strikes fear into the heart of most Christians and forces us to question our faithfulness in God. But for two incredible girls from Iran, girls my age, this was their reality. Miriam and Marzier were placed into a situation where denying Jesus would literally save their lives. You see, they had been sentenced to death by hanging, having been caught after distributing more than 20,000 Bibles in Tehran. For the majority of times, they would fill a backpack with Bibles, pray and ask God where they should distribute them, and then under the cover of darkness, they would simply place these Bibles in letterboxes. When they were caught, they were placed into Evan Prison, one of the most notorious prisons on the planet. And they told me stories of friends who were regularly beaten, tortured, abused and even killed. But as their case reached global media and pressure mounted for their release, the girls, they were regularly dragged before a judge who would simply say, write one sentence, saying that you'll convert from Christianity to Islam and we'll let you go. And each time they'll refuse. And the judge would grow more and more frustrated and say, no, you don't understand. If you don't do this, you will die here. And they replied, no, you don't understand. We've been threatened with death before. That's not the problem. We're not afraid of death. What we're afraid of is a life without faith, without our Saviour Jesus Christ. You know, we so often link stories of victory, miraculous provision, with God's faithfulness. But have we made a horrible mistake in doing this? One of the biggest struggles in my own journey has been the fact that, well, I seem to equate God's faithfulness with his provision of safety. And it's essentially rendered Jesus as this kind of blend between Superman and Santa Claus, a superhero that will sweep in and save the day wherever, whenever and however I need him. And in those moments when my prayer isn't answered immediately or how I want it to be answered, I question God's faithfulness. What most people don't know with Miriam and Marzier is that their safety, it came at a huge cost physical and emotional scars that run deep. The death of many close friends. And yes, their story ends the way we like it, released after 259 days with one of those exciting stories that we all crave. But trust in God's faithfulness? That's what defines this story. 
because whether it worked out the way we all wanted it to or not, it wouldn't have changed a thing. You see, their lawyer would tell them, if you convert to Islam, we can exploit a loophole. It allows you to tell a lie of convenience. And they would reply and say, we will never convert, not even for the sake of momentary convenience. It's stories like Miriam and Marzier, who because of Jesus, they stand in the face of culture in some of the most confrontational places on the planet. They're stories that inspire us, encourage us. But do they change us? Because Jesus isn't a mix between Superman and Santa Claus. And by following him, we don't get a life of safety. We get a great commission that involves suffering, hardship, but an assurance of eternity with him. A story, it may not end the way we want, but ultimately, God is always faithful. This video just shown was made by an organisation called Open Doors. They're an organisation that work with the persecuted church around the world. Last night, I and a bunch of others here had the privilege of going to Open Doors Live. It was a meeting of over a thousand people. They gathered, we sang, we rejoiced at God's provision. I was driving home and after hearing so many stories of persecution, it sort of just hit me like a truck. This feeling, this really heavy feeling of sadness at God's people being persecuted simply because they follow Jesus. I was really saddened and grieved to hear that people are terribly persecuted and even killed. Now, I wouldn't say that I was exhausted, as Daniel was at the end of his vision of persecution, but I can understand where he's coming from. It's hard to see hope in hopelessness, but that's why we have Daniel 8. Let's pray and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, you say that all of your scripture is good for teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness. Be with us now as we sit before Daniel 8 and find the hope in hopelessness. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please have this passage open in front of you. We say it every week, but if you read along with us, you'll understand why. It starts by saying that a couple of years after Daniel's first vision, which Ron took us through last week in Daniel 7, Daniel has another. Daniel 8 starts by saying that this vision takes place in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, about 550 BC. This vision takes him to the citadel of Susa, province of Elam, and this is a vision beside the Ulai Canal. In a passage filled with vague imagery, it's a very specific geographical location, 50 kilometres away in Susa. This place in modern-day Iran was the administrative capital of the Persian army, the Persian Empire's main spot. And when Daniel was there, he sees a ram. This ram has two long horns which represents the kings of Media and Persia. No one could stand against its power, the power of the Persian army, and it became great. The long reign represented by the long horns, no one could stop the Persian empire as it moved around and conquered. No one could stand against it. 
But as Daniel was viewing this ram, he saw a goat. This goat appeared with a prominent horn between its eyes. This goat is said to be the Macedonian, the Greek Empire, and people attribute the great horn to Alexander the Great. The phenomenal victories of the goat were achieved so rapidly that its feet scarcely touched the ground as it conquered. The Greek army and the Greek Empire overcame the Persians and the ram was defeated. Then it was the goat who became great. But at the height of Alexander's power and at age 32, he died and the horn was broken off. With Alex's sons dead and no heir, the rule of the empire fell to his four generals, the four prominent horns that grew up from the one great. The Macedonian empire was divided into four. Years later, out of one of these four horns came a small horn who grew in power. Verse 23 tells us that this horn was a fierce-looking king a master of intrigue that will cause astounding devastation. After looking into this, I'm convinced that this little horn is talking about a man named Antiochus. He came from the Seleucids, one of the four split-off empires, who was occupying Syria at the time. He grew in power and became the Seleucid king in 175 BC. He persecuted Christians. but He tried to wipe them out. Verse 24 says that he will destroy those who are mighty, being the Lord's people. It says that he made himself great, made himself powerful and grew until he thought he'd reached the level of God. After looking into this guy, he was really arrogant. He was a very arrogant ruler. He had special coins minted in the empire at that time to make him great. On one side was his face and on the other side was a picture of Zeus, the Greek Olympian god, And the inscription around the outside says, King Antiochus, image of God, bearer of victory. Verse 10 says that this guy grew until he reached the host of heavens. He thought he was one of the gods, an equal with the God of Israel, if not better. And to show his power, he attacked God and his people. He took away the daily sacrifice from God's people by defiling the temple with pig sacrifices dedicated to Zeus. He made it illegal to worship God and killed those who stood up against his rule. God's people were persecuted for their faith and suffered greatly. And under this pressure, God's people rebelled against him. They did not fight for their faith. Because of this, the daily sacrifice was given over to the little horn. The truth was thrown to the ground. Antiochus became very strong but not by his own power. Some believe this means that there was a power imbalance and the author wants you to show that he wasn't actually as powerful as God. Others believe that this indicates evil spiritual forces being the power behind Antiochus' reign. Whatever the interpretation is, it just adds to our cosmic understanding of how big this spiritual war is between God and evil. And while Daniel was experiencing all of this in his vision, he hears the voices of what could be described as angels or messengers. They watch on and they lament of what they see. How long will this take to be fulfilled, they say. I hear the emotion behind it. I say, how long, O Lord, until the persecution of your people comes to an end? And Daniel heard the answer. 2,300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. 
People smarter than me have tried to work out the maths for many, many years. Uh, maybe if you, you know, put it in the right columns, it'll be three and a half years, maybe seven years. Those are nice Bible numbers. But I think they're missing the point. It's a fixed number. The hope we get out is this is a fixed number. Persecution has an end date. Although we don't know what it is, it's a fixed time and God is in control. Daniel then sees someone who looks like a man. The man standing in front of Daniel is identified to be Gabriel. One of God, and God calls out to his angel Gabriel to interpret the vision for Daniel. Daniel then explains the details that we've already gone through with the animal and horn imagery. And at the end of the vision, after he's been given this interpretation, Daniel is told to seal it up so that no one is to see it because it concerns a distant future, the time in which the vision takes place. Daniel comes out of this vision and is exhausted. He's out of action for several days and when he finally recovers, he goes back to his job. He was appalled by this vision and it was beyond his understanding. This guy was understandably overwhelmed at this point. Daniel was shown a vision where the persecution and attempted ethnic cleansing of the Jewish people was taking place. He's currently in exile and he must think surely this is as bad as it can get. He's given a vision of the future, longing for a day where God will bring his people back to the beautiful land. Daniel sees this. He must be wondering to himself, where is God in all this? Bad things are happening. Where has he gone? Have the earthly kingdoms actually grown so powerful as to take on God in a fair fight and win? I mean, the angels were bothered by this. Angels. Of course Daniel's going to be a tad deflated. We sort of finish this passage and we feel a bit deflated. A little heavy like I was feeling last night hearing about the persecution of God's people. But we aren't meant to feel like this. This is actually a message of comfort and hope, believe it or not. And I missed a verse when recapping the story. I want you to all look at your Bibles. Come with me to verse 25. Verse 25 says, speaking of the tiny horn, he will cause deceit to prosper and will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. This is God. God is here. Antiochus took his stand against God and will be destroyed, and better yet, by God himself. In this tragedy of persecution, there is a message of hope. God is here now, there then, and king in the end. Here now, there then, and king in the end. God is there and was in control the entire time, although Daniel could not see it. This was a prophetic vision of things that hadn't happened yet in Daniel's time. But God knew the details intimately. Antiochus is a sign of evil in this world and the persecution that God's people will face from those who oppose God himself. And he is not alone in this world, but one example in a long list of people who have oppressed God's people. But God is in control. 
When researching the history behind Daniel 8 and specifically Antiochus, I came across an interesting moment in his life. Antiochus was once standing in the colonnade of Solomon and as he was defiling the temple and dedicating it to the Greek gods, he proclaimed that he was the image of God and went as far to say that he was God incarnate. Maybe your red flags are sticking up now. You've heard something like this before. John recalls a similar occasion. Approximately 200 years later, another man stood in the same spot as Antiochus and declared something maybe more controversial. A man named Jesus came and said that the Father and I are one and confirmed that he was the Messiah. The true Prince of Princes incarnate had come to live with his people. The tiny horn stood up to him but was no match. Antiochus was destroyed and most of history forgot about him. But the true king who came to earth to not glorify himself and persecute those who oppose him has not been forgotten. Antiochus died. Jesus also did die, yes, but the fact that he came back is the reason that he is unforgettable. While the tiny horn and other tyrants through history alike have been defeated by death, death has been defeated by Jesus. Antiochus attacked God's people by taking away their daily sacrifice. He took away the ability for people to cleanse themselves and be right with God. Jesus too took away that daily sacrifice. But that was because it replaced him. He replaced him with himself. A perfect sacrifice gave himself up once for all. See, Jesus had a better plan. God was working in this situation and was always in control. Even though Daniel and the people who are under the oppression of earthly kingdoms cannot see or understand God's plan sometimes, he was there. He's here now, there then, and king in the end. God is here now with Daniel as he's having his vision We've already encountered over the past couple of weeks numerous stories of God providing care for his people while they're in exile. God is still present and in control of the situation. Daniel and his friends have been saved from burning furnaces and hungry lions and even elevated to high positions in the government. God has shown his sovereignty. He's also here for us now. For us it's easy to know because scripture tells us so. But we also have the added bonus of the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling within us, being our advocate in hopeless situations. There are so many stories that we hear from the persecuted church of God. You heard the story of Miriam and Mazier. They were sentenced to death for distributing Bibles in Iran. Now, while they were saved from death in the end, so were others. Both women tell a story of meeting a man some years later at one of their speaking events. He told them that during the time of their letterbox drop, he received one. He took it, he read it, and came to know the love of Jesus. He became a Christian and too joined the mission under the threat of persecution. We live in a world now where the powers against God are going to try and persecute his people. Jesus illustrates this in Matthew 13, if you want to follow along on the screen. So good seed, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. 
But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, did you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burnt. Then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. We live in a world where we are trying to grow in faith and weeds are there to try and choke it out of us. However, Jesus says that after a fixed time, the weeds will be collected, thrown into a fire to be burned. And we who remain faithful and hope through the hopelessness will be gathered up and brought inside the barn. He is sovereign. He is in control and cares for his crop while it grows. God is also there then. If we look at Daniel while he's in his vision, Daniel is able to get a sense that although God isn't mentioned a lot in the passage, he is giving the vision to Daniel. He is saying that as I am with you now in Babylon, I am with you and I am in control in Susa. I will be there then when my people face the ram and the goat and the horns that oppress. God shows Daniel the vision to demonstrate his control over every situation, no matter how fierce the enemy seems. Earthly powers are no match for him and he can easily defeat every kind of evil when he deems their time has come. And the same message is true for us. God will be there then with us in every situation we face. We too find ourselves in a fixed time of persecution. It's arguably harder to be a Christian now than it has been previously and it will probably get harder. While some of us might be feeling quite comfortable sitting here in West Pennant Hills, there is a world full of Christians, 245 million of them, who do not enjoy the same freedom to exercise their faith as we do. But why do they continue? They understand the hope in hopelessness. They know the end of the story and so they live accordingly. They long for Jesus as King as he will reign over his people. Jesus is king and his reign will be eternal. While persecution and suffering are faced in this world, it has an end date. Persecution will be no more to those who endure it in this life for the sake of the gospel. And to those who are strong in faith, the wheat that get taken into the barn, what's the message for them? To those who are strong in faith, he will wipe away every tear from their eye. No more mourning, no more death, crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Those who are victorious, they will inherit eternal life. He says, I will be their God and they will be my children. This is hope in hopelessness. Understanding that God is in control and faithful to his people now, then and at the end. And by this we can persevere through hardship because he is worth it whatever the cost. 
and there can be severe costs to following Jesus. We see that in stories like Miriam and Marzier when faith in Jesus lands them in one of the most notorious prisons in Iran. You see, persecution and suffering will come to those who are bold in faith. Yet we often look for, pray for, an ending to the nice stories. I wonder if sometimes we forget that no matter the outcome, God's faithfulness and his character do not change. Last night at Open Doors Live, I heard persecution described as the hallmark of successful Christianity. Because where there is bold faith, there is opposition. Yet opposition allows God's faithfulness to shine through. It refines our faith. It strengthens our reliance on God. Sometimes in our busy lives, we can't see that God is here now. Is he going to be there then? Is there even an end? Maybe you worry about what being a Christian will mean for you in the long term. What exactly am I going to give up for this Jesus guy? Maybe you're concerned that right now someone's going to find out you're in a church. Maybe you struggle to see God in the tough times of suffering. He's too far away. It's almost as if he's forgotten you. Maybe you fear the judgment of others in your life and feel like it is easier to give in to the oppressive horn that rules over your life than to take a stand for the gospel. When faced with opposition and God seems too far away, hold on to this truth. Remember this. God is here now. He will be there then. And long for Jesus because he is king in the end. Hold on to this truth. Preach it to yourself and worship God with this truth. Because although the nations rage and kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. And so brothers and sisters, do not fear that this truth remains, that our God Our God, he is the Ancient of Days. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus, to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmatt's.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.